when you're more powerful than a god. When you wrestle someone in grits for a promotion. When we really need to talk about that sword. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ostron, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Ryu. And I'm Lennon. And this is the 172nd entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, July the 3rd, and released Wednesday, July 7th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Lennon, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? In this week's Adventures Pack, Ryu promises us that these adventures are legendary. Next, we check out some D&D news as we discuss Volo's Guide to... Thay, uh, the latest MTG D&D crossover in Scarlet Flames, some news for Adventurers League players wanting to play the Masters campaigns, and whatever the heck is going on with TSR. Uh, no, not that TSR, the, the other TSR. No, not that one either, the, the other other TSR. After that we take a short rest for some advice on OP mitigation, before finally heading over to the scrying pool to see what you all have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventures bag. You always carry this machine bag? If we're gonna get out of here, we're not gonna need a few things. Name one thing you're gonna need this stupid roll for! You guys have heard me mention several times now how badly I want wizards to release a level 20 adventure module. Well, they keep dragging their feet on that, and at least a few other third-party 5th edition content creators have been one-upping wizards by going beyond level 20 into epic level content. And for those of you who are newer to D&D, epic levels, meaning PCs can level all the way to 30 instead of stopping at level 20. Now I'm sure that Ostron has some opinions about this source book, but I am absolutely loving Legendary Adventures 5th Edition by Mike Myler and team. Despite its name, this isn't actually a book of adventures, but rather a book about how to make your campaigns reach into the epic levels of play. So starting out, every class, except the Artificer, unfortunately, is given epic level class features as they level up. Some of these class features are the same, such as at level 21, all of the classes get to choose a second subclass and learn the first available feature in said subclass. And they eventually gain access to the second and third features of that secondary subclass at levels 23 and 27 respectively. Or the legendary ability score improvements at 22nd, 24th, 26th, and 28th level, where you can either take both one point in any ability score of your choosing and a feat, or you can learn one of the new epic feats that are available in the book. The class-specific epic features are things like bards being able to grant another creature inspiration once per day. And note, that's DM inspiration, not bardic inspiration. Sorcerers gaining exploding spell dice at 29th level, or druids literally gaining the ability to become their own lair at level 21. Also, all damage cantrips gain an extra damage die at levels 23 and 29. There are 17 new epic feats to choose from, as I mentioned, and these things are things like gaining a fourth secondary subclass feature, 
or the ability to summon creatures like manticores, nightmares, and owlbears out of nowhere. But the meat of the book is in the encounters. Now, these aren't just monsters, which I will get to in a second, but also environmental hazards like anti-magic clouds that might just expend your highest level open spell slot for you, or my favorite, wild magic zones, that can cause a random effect to go off any time a spell is cast within them. Along with the environmental hazards are planar diseases that can affect any or all of your party, like the pastracite that literally rewrites the past of a character, or a fractured rift disorder in which your character must succeed on a DC-18 con save after making a melee attack, or be teleported to a random plane of existence. There are 50 new high CR monsters in this book, ranging from the CR-21 nature giant all the way up to Satan at CR-35. There are six new epic elementals and five new epic dragon types, my favorite of which is the energy dragon, which has the ability to polymorph into pretty much any of the CR-26 or lower monsters that are also in this epic bestiary. There's also a beautiful tribute to our hobby's creator in the form of the literally unkillable Gygazak. And finally, to wrap up this deliciously OP sourcebook is a single magic item, which isn't so much of a magic item per se, as it's more like a gold from Stargate. So yeah, if you want your characters to actually taste godhood, this source book might just be for you. Does the alien symbiote come with an army of Jafar, or is that separate? I think that one's separate, but ah, besides besides the army of Jafar, it's just like a gold from Stargate. I mean, it, it pretty much is. It sort of yeah. uh, lives within you, enhances your abilities, allows you to dial a big interstellar portal with nothing but a series of symbols. Yeah, yeah it's pretty much, pretty much a gold. Yeah, I think the authors of this book had an interest in importing several things from sci-fi franchises because a couple of the creatures definitely have more of a sci-fi bent than a fantasy one which is basically justified by the idea that at these levels the characters should be plane hopping and the you know the multiverse is not just limited to the planes that have been outlined in the various D&D resources, so it's likely you can steal things from other areas. I was, however, on the line of what you're usually focused on, Lennon, I was thinking there's several things in the alien symbiote that would work if for some reason you needed a creature to be inhabited by a quarry. Yeah, have you been Eberron. reading the Eberron source book again? Is that... Yeah, and you, uh, well, because it, the, the quarry are basically mental symbiotes, but they're supposed to be very powerful, and there isn't a lot to work with if you want to simulate that somehow, unless you use one of the stat blocks provided that already indicates that someone is possessed, but this could be a way to do that. You'd have to play around with it a lot, otherwise the creature that's being inhabited is going to just immediately kill whoever they run into, but... Yeah, yeah. 
It is interesting to see what could be done if 5th edition did decide to go to level 30 though, because obviously it does stop at level 20 and the designers made that decision to stop there to keep everything nice and bounded and everything like that. We joke at level 20 you're basically fighting gods, but in this you, you can literally fight Odin. That is, is an option. Yeah, but I, I did think those were quite cool as well. The uh, Energy Dragon, the Holy Dragon, the Robo Dragon, the Soul Hoarder Dragon, and the Vile Dragon. I really did like the Soul Hoarder Dragon, a CR 27 creature, which sounds uh, every bit as terrifying in its lore description as its artwork suggests. It's also a Spellcaster Dragon, which yep. is very unusual for 5th edition. Granted, this isn't official. I'm sure there are third-party resources where it brings back the thing of every dragon being a spellcaster, but... Mm. Yeah, but when, when a dragon can cast Time Stop... <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, maybe it's... Maybe it's a good job that you are level 20 uh, plus at plus. this point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you... Because you're definitely going to need it. Yeah, I was gonna say, though, if you aren't interested in doing epic play and letting characters level past 20, this resource is still a decent source of god-level creatures if you actually want stats. Because yes. yeah. there's a decent number of creatures that have CRs over 20 available from official resources, although a lot of them are sort of area-specific. Um, like, some come from Ravnica, some are obvious gods or greater demons. So there aren't always sort of general marauders that could fit anywhere, and I feel like a lot more of these creatures are generic enough that you could plop them down anywhere and they would convincingly fit in. I was dumbfounded by the Satan stat block, though. Yeah, that one, that cracked me up. I... I just had to mention that. The creature has a list of at-will spells that includes spells up through level, like, six or seven. Just to start with, the creature's stat block is two pages long. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, this is not a creature that is supposed to be beaten. Right. I mean, I know that challenge rating is useless, but it is rated as a challenge rating 35, which is uh, pretty scary in its own right, particularly if you consider that the Tarrasque is only a challenge rating 30. And one of only two creatures that has that challenge rating. Right. Right. At, At least, least unofficial it. things. Of course, yeah. yes. I mean, we are reviewing a third-party product here that comes with all the asterisks that it normally does. Having said that, though, the creatures that I have looked over, and admittedly I haven't cross-referenced all of them, but the ones that I have looked over, they do seem really well-balanced if you ignore CR as a general guideline anyway. And like Ostrom was saying, they are the sorts of things that you could very easily drop into any other campaign. It doesn't have to be themed around higher-level play. So if you've always wanted a Swarm of Death, but you've never had the stat block for it, well, we've got a resource here for you. There's also a stat block for death. Yeah, if the swarm of death isn't isn't enough. And if you are playing in some sort of um, Discworld-based campaign, they've got a world turtle that you can also use. You can't use the death stat block, though, because there's no, no mention of cats anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't bother to go over the 
different epic level class features in detail. A lot of them seemed repetitive, like every class is basically getting the same kind of stuff as they level up. Um, and a lot of them are just, you had this ability already, it got better as you were leveling through 20, now we're making it even better than that. Um, so it doesn't look like, for the most part, they went too crazy, you know, ignoring the fact that you have to go a certain amount of crazy at this level anyway. I did look over the feats and I wasn't as impressed because some of them are very ambiguous. I did feel that way too. It would need some more work from the DM. The easiest example I can point to is one feat called Worldly Linguist, which says you gain proficiency in all common languages and then one of the following, Druid, Sylvan, or Thieves Can't. So does that mean all languages other than those three are considered common languages? And does that also mean if you run into a creature that speaks something weird, you automatically know that language, even if it's a language only spoken by those creatures? Or how does that work? So, yeah, I mean, a lot of the feats are, are pretty straightforward and make sense. Again... Most of them are just sort of leveled up versions of feats or abilities that already exist. Uh, like the characters can gain the legendary resistance that epic monsters do. But yeah, for the most part, if you have a need for the book, I don't see a problem with using anything with it. I don't know that I would personally use it. But the only other thing that caught my eye is it's very clear... And it sort of makes sense that they used more than one artist to provide the artwork for the book. And it was kind of jarring in places because the artists definitely had different styles. And it doesn't look like there was always an effort to consolidate the styles. Because some of them are very realistic in terms of their portrayal. Like they look like artwork you would find in official D&D &D modules. Some of the others, though, look a little bit more comic book style, and that kind of threw me off. Links to Legendary Adventures can be found in our show notes, but is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Found a cool app, book, or other item you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? If so, let us know about it on social media at Heroes Rise D&D, or by emailing sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have... News. Now, what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. This week in D&D News, fans of the Forgotten Realms rejoice. Alan Patrick, Alex Kammer, Joe Russo, Kilted Fiend Studios, Jeff Gander, Fiona, and Ed Elminster Visits Me in My Kitchen Greenwood have announced that they're all hard at work on some new titles coming to the DMs Guild soon. T. M. Well, to be fair, Ed announced it on their behalf, at least. On Twitter, Ed says that in the wake of the success of The Border Kingdoms, we'll be coming new books based on Fey, a new Rashomon tome. Uh, Rashomon is also known as the Land of the Berserkers, lying to the north of Fey. And a new Volo's Guide. Volo's Guide to what, though? We're not too sure yet. 
Those who may have only joined D&D in its more recent incarnations may only be aware of Volo's Guide to Monsters, which expanded the various adversaries available at a dungeon master's discretion to torment their players with. But in previous incarnations, Volo wrote a lot of guides to a lot of places, including Volo's Guide to Cormir, Volo's Guide to the Sword Coast, Volo's Guide to All Things Magical, and the ever-popular Volo's Guide to the North. As of the time of this recording, there are no further details pending on release dates, but if you're a fan of the Forgotten Realms and you're looking for Wizards of the Coast to expand beyond the Sword Coast, maybe the originator of the realms might be able to fill in the gap for you in the meantime? I'm always really excited when the original creators make additional supplements for their creations, because even though I know Wizards of the Coast have it and they steer it, and the same with Eberron, I just feel that it's kind of more authentic to get it from the source. Well, that used to be the way that wizards did it. Yeah, yeah, they just contracted they, it out, didn't they? Yeah, they contract like everything up to or up until fifth edition, I think. I'm not sure exactly how it worked in fourth, but all of the Forgotten Realms stuff was written by Greenwood entirely, like given a sanity pass by wizards and then published. Mm -hmm. um, and that actually even happened back in 2nd edition before Wizards of the Coast got a hold of it. More on that later. Um, but <laughs> the... Yeah, so they're sort of continuing in the tradition. It just doesn't have the official seal of approval in it. But does it have the seal of approval? Like, surely if it's got the original creator, it's kind of got a seal. Well, it'll have a seal of approval from most of the fans and the people in the know. Like, uh, for example, Greenwood put out his brief on Candlekeep relatively soon before Wizards published their Candlekeep Adventures Guide. And when that happened, a lot of the fans were saying, as soon as Wizards made the announcement about their Candlekeep book, they were like, I don't care what Wizards says, Greenwood already published a resource I'm sticking with that as the definitive, it doesn't matter. So I imagine something similar is going to be the approach for a mm. lot of fans here. It is worth noting that there is some Thay content that has leaked into official 5th edition stuff. For those who follow Adventures League, there was a module released, I think... I, I'm not sure if released is the right term, but they were using a module that focused on the so-called Red Wizards. Yeah, uh, Red Wizards are Thay. Like, they're the big thing in Thay. They're basically in charge of the country. And for those who don't want to try to look up a map online, Thay is way far to the east of the Sword Coast. Like, if you pull up a map of the Forgotten Realms, the Sword Coast is, like, one-fifth of the way from the left edge of the map. Thay is about one-fifth the way from the right edge of the map. Uh, I'm not sure if Thay was the original setting for the Oriental Adventures or if that's what it turned into, but we'll put the research beholders on it and maybe we'll have a short rest about it sometime in the future. Mm. And, and speaking of Thay, actually, basically the next two items has all sorts of stuff to do with it. So if you're interested in any of these, you might want to check out those books from Ed Greenwood as well. So I realize that these are not official supplements that Ed is talking about, but 
I personally would find it hilarious if the Volo's Guide was the Volo's Guide to Spirits that Volo talks about possibly writing in... Um, oh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist. Yes, in Waterdeep yeah. Dragon Heist. Yeah, unfortunately I don't think it will be because I think Wizards will probably have something to say about that. And I'm not sure the kind they would. Ed in his kitchen. But it would still make me laugh. We probably won't be using it in my campaign because I think when we played through Waterdeep Dragon Heist, we... We were not nice to Volo. I don't know if <laughs> after we were done, he was capable of writing anymore. Well, that took a twist. I kind of want to know, but I also don't want to pad this segment out anymore. So, Reed, yep. take us on. Magic the Gathering, Wizards' other massively popular nerdy IP, has already had several crossovers into D&D. Now, for those of you who have never heard of Magic the Gathering, first, where the heck have you been since 1993? Secondly, Magic the Gathering is a collectible card game, or CCG, that sees players take on the role of planeswalkers, powerful wizards that can walk between the different planes of the Magic the Gathering multiverse. You collect cards to build your decks, full of creatures and spells, and then you battle it out with opponents at friendly local gaming stores the world over. Since the inception of 5th edition, Wizards of the Coast have been working at closer aligning their two moneymakers. At first, there was the Plane Shift series of articles that brought settings guides into D&D for places like Innistrad, Ixalan, and Zendikar. And then there was the hardback releases of the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, Mythic Odysseys of Theros, as well as the upcoming Mages of Strixhaven that all officially brought their respective settings into D&D. Well, now D&D are returning the favor and getting their claws into Magic the Gathering, with the next set release being Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, meaning players will be able to collect spells and creatures themed around their favorite default D&D setting. And what better way to celebrate the full cross-pollination of D&D into Magic the Gathering than with an adventure? Over on the MTG website is an adventure for four to six characters of eighth level entitled In Scarlet Flames. Two Red Wizards of Thay have undertaken a secret mission into the High Moors east of the Sword Coast. They are searching for something, or someone. Whatever their goal out there in the cold and windswept hills, if the Red Wizards want to keep it secret, then it is probably best uncovered swiftly for the good of everyone else. In fact, even the mercenaries who escorted them into the wilderness earlier agree, someone should stop them. Pursuing the Red Wizards leads the adventurers to a barrow mound in the wild grasses of the High Moors. At the barrow, they discover the remnants of a wizard's sanctum still being plundered. The fate of its lore and the treasures is up to the characters. Without caution, things may get out of hand. This adventure is written as the first entry into a series of adventures that will be released over the next however long Wizards decides to do this for. But if it's sticking around for the same amount of time as the Magic the Gathering set, expect it to be in favor anywhere from three months to a year. As for the adventure itself, it's a fairly small self-contained dungeon crawl into the aforementioned Wizards Barrow that doesn't offer anything revolutionary but is by no means a bad adventure and serves as a decent on-ramp for any Magic players who are curious about D&D, but may never have gotten around to actually playing, or as a side quest or one-shot for your own games. Links to the adventure can be found over on the Magic the Gathering website or through the links in our show notes. Why 8th level? Because it's better than starting at level 1. Well, no, I mean, I'm not complaining. <laughs> I definitely think that the fact that we have an official adventure that acknowledges people actually play their characters past level 5 is a great thing. I'm just not sure why they decided to pick 8th level. So I was thinking about this myself, because this isn't, it's just not 8th level, it's, it starts at 8th level. There are more 
parts of this adventure that will be coming. So it will go beyond 8th level. And the only thing that I can really think of is, this was actually released to the Magic the Gathering community. It was on the Magic the Gathering website. Obviously, D&D did post about it because they're both owned by Wizards, so of course they're going to cross-promote. But this is very much aimed at Magic the Gathering players, and for anybody who hasn't played Magic the Gathering, it can get quite... Um, I don't want to say complex necessarily in the bad sense, but there are some cards that you play that can counter other cards which then have impacts on other cards, and a lot of people build their decks around having these really uh, complex chains that mean they do one action and that has a knock-on effect and a knock-on effect and a knock-on effect, and the next thing you know they're chaining combos all over the place. I feel that for your, your sort of standard magic player who's used to dealing with that level of not just um, all the moving parts, but also magic is very specific in its rulings, that starting at 8th level is probably about the sort of level that they would be used to playing in a game. Starting out at 1st level, they may get bored. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. By 8th level, you're dealing with characters that have a couple of different synergistic abilities, and right. they're, you know, tweaking their own attacks and abilities much more than at a base level, so... Okay, I'll buy that. Yeah, and that was also my thinking behind why the adventure was effectively... Like we said, there's nothing revolutionary here, there's nothing groundbreaking, it is just a straightforward dungeon crawl, but for a moderately high level. And I think that if it was designed for D&D players, then actually the adventure would be a lot more involved, not the starting level, if you see what I mean. I don't know about you guys, but I am excited about this being a series of adventures. First of all, the mention of Thay. <laughs> I, I really, even though it's a horrible, horrible place, I really love the mythos surrounding Thay and the Red Wizards, and I, I really just fell in love with that when, um, when the Neverwinter expansion came out, mm-hmm. and. Neverwinter Nights, specifically. Yes. Neverwinter Nights 2. And I really think that just reading over this adventure, this has the potential to become an extremely good storyline. Yeah, I don't want to spoil too much about the various NPCs involved, but there are a couple of pretty strong characters in here, and there's definitely one that you know is going to crop up multiple times in later adventures. I am kind of worried that this isn't going to do anything for the D&D players who are sick of the Sword Coast, though. Because <laughs> yeah. it's an adventure for Thay in the Sword Coast. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's possible they may traverse over to Thay, but if this is supposed to be a an introduction primarily for Magic players, they're probably going to keep it on the Sword Coast where all the more familiar stuff is. Yeah. Particularly because the sample magic cards that we've seen so far that belong to the set seem to be sticking with the more common themes, so Mm -hmm. they're going to want to reinforce that with the tie-in adventure module. And great news for Adventurers League players. From July 1st, you'll be able to create brand new characters at level 5 for entry into a Master's Campaign module. What's a Master's Campaign module? Well, with the Adventurers League, there are four types of campaigns. Seasonal, Master's, Historic, and Alternative. 
Seasonal is the current major storyline and usually follows the annual hardcover adventure from Wizards of the Coast. This is currently Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frostmaiden. And these games will run for characters levels 1 through 11. Master's Campaign games are for characters levels 5 and up, and they run separate storylines from the Seasonal Campaign, with the current Master's Campaign being Dreams of the Red Wizards. Normally, when creating your Adventurers League character, you can start them at level 1 for a Seasonal, Historic, or Alternative campaign, and then eventually transition them to the Master's Campaign once they've reached level 5. There's a lot of limitations on what characters can move to and from which campaign to the other, but provided you haven't migrated to Historic, you're generally good. From July, however, players can choose to start a new level 5 character in a Masters campaign without having to go through a seasonal or alternative campaign to get their levels first. Characters who start out this way get to select standard starting equipment and also have an additional 80 gold pieces and one potion of healing. Along with these new rules, they will also be releasing two new modules for the Masters campaigns for July's Virtual Play Weekend, which runs July 9th through to July 11th. A perfect time to roll up that brand new tabaxi monk-slash-rogue-slash-warlock hybrid that you've been dreaming of. Sorry, I'm trying to keep down the bile for the character idea at the end of the <laughs> segment there. Well, I figured, you know, the Masters campaigns, you start at level 5, it's kind of about the time where if, if you are going to dip into a subclass, you know, just 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 start doing it then and uh, let's see how far you can push it. Um, but yes, uh, so this is good news for anybody who plays in Adventurous Leagues, particularly now that the friendly local gaming stores are starting to run games in person again and conventions are slowly happening. It means that people will be able to get out there and actually play their characters, though as you know, we mentioned just then the virtual play weekends are still happening. And if you are playing in Adventures League and you want to register for the virtual play weekends, the Yawning Portal website is where you go to do that. And links for that will be in our show notes in case you want to jump on and do that. And more stuff about Red Wizards. And more stuff about Red Wizards. Also, for what it's worth, these um, Dreams of the Red Wizards and the associated Adventures League modules, um, you can actually find all of these on the DMs Guild. They only cost a dollar maybe two it's it's around there and if you need more forgotten realms campaign stuff or just a bit of a side quest that you can drop in these are actually written by wizards of the coast and they are pretty decent modules um they they aren't made by the main team but a lot of the time they will have the odd main team member on the staff writing some of the modules etc so if you did want more red wizards in your forgotten realms have a look in the Adventures League stuff because there's a, a lot of stuff in there that might be useful. I, I alluded to this talking about it, uh, talking about the uh, Magic the Gathering adventure, but things just always get interesting when Thay starts sticking his hands into things. Alrighty, we hope you're all sitting comfortably because this next one may take a little bit of explaining. It also has the potential to get complex quite quickly, and while we've tried our best to remove obfuscation without resorting to some sort of realized oikumenital solution to do so, because everyone told me no, a lot of it centers around three companies, all called TSR-ish. Sort of. It, it's complicated. It's also still very much ongoing, so there may be even more to this saga by the time the show airs on Wednesday. Also, we're not lawyers, and we don't claim to be. Everything we're about to present has been taken from various news sources, both online and from other places, and we're reporting everything in good faith. 
please feel free to check the links in our show notes if you want to dive into the 179 tweets and four chord articles rabbit hole. That said, sit down, grab a glass of your favorite water, and let's start at the beginning, where all good stories start. Once upon a time, in the far-out year of 1974, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson were playing the tabletop war game Chainmail, and thought, man, wouldn't it be groovy if instead of playing as a unit, us hip cats would play as individual heroes? That'd be cool, daddy-o. Okay, who wrote this? Look, I wasn't alive in the 70s, I just took a guess. Uh, that's not... Anyway, Gary and Dave then created Dungeons & Dragons as a supplement to Chainmail, and released through the company that Gygax founded with another gent named Don Kay, named Tactical Studies Rules, or TSR for short. TSR, which from this point out, we'll call TSRK after Don Kay, rather than TSR Gygax, because, well, that name's going to crop up a lot. Anyway... TSRK then went on to publish 1st edition and 2nd edition of D&D, before the whole thing went sideways and the company was facing bankruptcy. TSRK was then bought out by a young upstart named Wizards of the Coast, who published a card game about gathering magic. It wasn't long before Wizards of the Coast published their own version of D&D, 3rd edition, which removed all elements of TSRK. TSRK then just sat as one of the many trademarks of Wizards' portfolio. Resigned to the annals of tabletop gaming history, the TSR trademark fell out of use in 2004, but nobody really bothered to check on it until 2011, when Jason Elliott realised and so quickly filed a claim for the name for himself. This new TSR, which we'll call TSR Elliott, published the game Top Secret, and was using the trademark for a few years until 2020, when, due to reasons of a kind of global nature, TSR Elliott missed their filing date, and the trademark was up for grabs once more. This time, it was acquired by Justin Lanasa. This new TSR, which we will call TSR Lanasa, then hired Gary Gygax's son, Ernie Gygax Jr., among others. Now, Ernie himself had tried to make his way in tabletop RPG space before, launching a Kickstarter in 2015 for a campaign setting called Marmorial Tomb, which failed to ship years after his successful funding. Ernie was facing legal action over the failure to launch, as well as apparently failing to grasp how Kickstarter fees and taxes work, calling them both wasted money. So he sold Marmorial Tomb to Troll Lord Games, who looked to actually be fulfilling the original Kickstarter pledge now. Anyway, back to TSR. It turns out that even though TSR Elliot let the trademark lapse, that doesn't mean that they actually lose their legal protections, but in order to stop TSR Lanasa using the trademark required legal filings, lawyers, and all kinds of other expenses which very quickly add up. TSR Lanasa then agreed to license the trademark of TSR Games to TSR Elliot for the low, low sum of $10 US per year, which meant that both companies could trade under the name TSR Games, even though they are in fact two completely separate corporate entities. TSR Elliot then went about publishing their own things under the TSR Games name, whilst TSR Lanasa drummed out the old logo to make sure everybody knew that TSR was back and there was a Gygax at the helm. TSR Lanasa then announced two exciting projects, Giant Lands, which would include a LARP at a Giant Lands theme park, and Star Frontiers. Oh, and the logo technically read actually, belongs to Wizards of the Coast, but, I mean, you know, what's a logo between friends? TSR's back, baby! Well, all seemed to be going well for TSR games, no matter who was behind it. Until, that is, Ernie, in his capacity as Executive Vice President of TSR Games, gave an interview where he said many things that are 
problematic, including phrases such as Wizards of the Coast being a bunch of corporate raiders, and saying that their recent changes to ability scores and racial stereotypes saw wizards, and I quote, joining the pack of lemmings, unquote. All the while making a lot of disparaging comments about Native Americans and the LGBTQ community. This led both companies using the TSR game's name, TSR Elliot and TSR Lanasa, to very quickly issue statements trying to distance themselves from the matter. TSR Elliot, being the company who didn't hire Ernie, immediately issued a statement confirming their unequivocal support of transgender rights, racial justice, women, and the LGBTQ community. Ernie's brother, Luke Gygax, also immediately issued a statement reaffirming he has nothing to do with any of the TSRs and doesn't support Ernie's comments. And even official conventions such as Gen Con, which was set up by Gary himself, and GaryCon, which was created in honor of his memory, have issued statements saying that not only are they not related to and do not support TSR Lanasa, but they're also not welcoming the company on their convention floors. TSR Lanasa, on the other hand, well, initially they said that Ernie wasn't one of the corporate guys, despite being the executive vice president, and that he didn't actually make those remarks, even though it was a video interview. This lasted about an hour before they then gave it the old there are good people on both sides argument and made some generic statements about diversity, all the while actually harassing people who criticized Ernie's statements, even going as far as to out Ernie as autistic in an attempt to shift the blame to his critics for unfairly harassing someone with his condition. Another employee of TSR Lanasa also made some comments that were considered transphobic by some, Note, we're only phrasing it this way because the original post has been taken down and our research beholders didn't get a chance to read them first, and Ostron won't let anyone do time magic, unfortunately. And he responded in the most professional way possible. He decided to prove his critics wrong by telling them that he would kill them if anyone confronted him in person. And it just continues. Remember the whole thing about the logo and that thing about wizards owning it and that announcement of Star Frontiers? Well, it turns out that TSR and NASA don't have the rights to, well, any of it. See, Star Frontiers was originally published by TSRK, but that was then later acquired by Wizards of the Coast. TSR Lanasa, on the other hand, seemed to think that because they have the name TSR, this somehow gives them the right to all TSR's properties. To ensure that the trademark for Star Frontiers stayed with Wizards, they published a new PDF for free on their website, but TSR Lanasa are still claiming that the trademark and the IP belong to them, and there's currently a fight going on with Wizards over this as we speak. They've also sent legal threats to lots of old school D&D fan clubs on Facebook and elsewhere, demanding money from them if they dare to use the TSR logo on their pages or else they would get them shut down. They also engaged in some questionable business practices, sending out blank contracts to artists that required a lot of personal information, including their social security numbers, saying that having a blank contract would simply, quote, speed up the commissioning of the works. TSR Lanasa then announced that some of the original TSRK employees, such as Ward and Cask, would be joining them. This actually came as quite a surprise to everyone involved, particularly Ward and Cask, who had absolutely zero contact with TSR Lanasa prior to their names being dropped, and they issued statements accordingly. And on top of all this, one of the founders of TSR Lanasa, a guy by the name of Stefan Deinhardt, then said that all of this controversy was actually instigated and pushed forward by Wizards of the Coast themselves 
in an attempt to dethrone the one true TSR, which for anyone still playing along at home is, is actually still Wizards of the Coast, not TSR Lanasa. Finally fed up with whatever the heck TSR Lanasa are trying to do, TSR Elliot have completely rebranded themselves as Solarian Games, and have stated they will not be continuing the licensing agreement from TSR Lanasa to use the TSR Games trademark, and they will not be working with them in any fashion. So for now, it appears as if there's just one company left calling themselves TSR, TSR Lanasa. And remember, they're the ones who don't actually own anything of TSRK except the rights to use the names TSR and TSR Games. Where this goes from here is anyone's guess, but it honestly doesn't look good for TSR Lanasa. With Wizards of the Coast ensuring their IPs and trademarks are maintained, backed by their parent company Hasbro, who has one or two more lawyers than TSR, and almost everyone on the internet agreeing that TSR Lanasa is just attempting a quick cash grab based on nostalgia of seeing the old logo that they don't own, this may all be over by the time the show airs. Or it may just be getting started. Either way, we recommend it's best not to book your tickets for that Giant Lands theme park until they've actually released an RPG. So when I wrote that copy, approximately an hour ago, uh, I said that it might all be over, or it might just be getting started, and in the meantime, uh, it has come out, and I think that the only way that I can really add this is to read a quote, um, which is that Lanasa himself, at his previous uh, occupation, he videoed two of his female employees wrestling in grits for a promotion in one of his tattoo parlours in North Carolina. This came to light when he decided to run for Congress. I this don't know where to put that in. Just keeps <laughs> <laughs> right. This dumpster fire just keeps getting bigger. Yeah, this this is um, this is this is just crazy. I I I don't even know where to start with this. Um, I mean, kind of good that TSR Elliot have actually said, you know what, guys, we're <laughs> out. This this level of crazy is is just not for me. Yeah. At one point, I saw a couple of other tweets basically to the effect of TSR Lanasa were saying, or were trying to claim that similar to what we said, they are the, like, true legacy of Gary Gygax. Because of Ernie. Because of Ernie. And a lot of people came back with, you know Gary Gygax's legacy is actually kind of problematic, right? Because of, you know, various issues that have been highlighted with the portrayal of certain races and uh, countries in original D&D materials. And their response to that was just as brilliant as their response to the other, the naming controversy, which they said, well, if you don't like Gary Gygax, then you shouldn't be playing D&D. And, well, you can imagine how well that went. Right. Yeah, exactly. I feel like this is uh, J.K. Rowling part two, <laughs> well, except worse. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say J.K. Rowling is a single person. This this seems yeah. to be an entire company. Um, yeah, and there is just the the thing is like, not that I you know clearly don't condone any of this at all, but the the unfortunate matter is, no matter what people's opinions actually are, they they're entitled to hold them personally, you know, they don't have any right to a platform or anything like that. And with 
What TSR Lanasa actually did manage to get, all they had to do was just shut up and publish games as TSR games, and they would have made more money than they probably even imagined of going into this. But it just seems that every time one of them opens their mouth, they come out with something... Uh, I... yeah. I, I don't... I, I don't really even... Because yeah, it, it's beyond just bullshit at this point. It's beyond a dumpster fire. It's... I, I think... I think the problem is that... I mean, reading between the lines on some of the tweets, and this is 100% my own opinion, I have no evidence to back this up, and I'm... I'm making a few generalizations here, so I'll apologize in advance if someone thinks this is off base, but I think the people behind TSR Lanasa saw the complaints and the criticisms that Wizards of the Coast has been getting from certain subsets of the D&D fandom related to the changes that they're making around the races right. and the um, the alignments and things like that. And I think TSR Lanasa tried to lean into, hey, we're going back to the original D&D, the quote-unquote real D&D. You know, we're bringing it back to the game that you love. Which, and I think they were trying to hook that segment of the population that was becoming disenchanted with Wizards of the Coast, the obvious problem being a lot of those people were voicing more problematic opinions and more questionable stances than Wizards themselves. Mm -hmm. And it seems like TSR Lanasa just tried to sort of double down on that in support of that fan base, which seemed to be more of a minority than they were counting or maybe they're in the school of no press is bad press and they're loving all this. I mean, maybe. Um, on the on the latter comment, maybe they're in the school of no press is bad press, except there absolutely is such a thing as bad press, and uh, mm. I think this is very much heading there. Maybe you're right. Maybe they were trying to, you know, just trying to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt here, trying to go the opposite way to what Wizards of the Coast is doing, but even then there's ways to go about it and honestly one of them is not by engaging in the sort of diatribe that Ernie did on video and the questions that were coming up you know the remarks that Ernie was making in the video recording there was a lot of personal opinion and personal feeling that slipped through in that and unfortunately when you are the executive vice president of a company your words and the company's opinion aren't separate. This is a choice that you make when you end up in that position. And if that is the crowd that you're going after, how you know, make sure that you swing the pendulum a sensible amount. You just don't don't do this at all. Also, you know, I maybe it's just me, but I I am firmly in the camp of when people immediately start threatening physical harm to people criticizing them, they have to know that they're wrong. Yeah, I mean, generally, if you can't attack the idea, you attack the person. So it means that they can't respond to the idea. Yeah. Oh, this is such a dumpster <laughs> fire, guys. It, it really the is. Whole dump, the whole dump is on fire at this point. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, at least, at least one thing's clear. Anybody out there who is claiming to be TSR actually isn't TSR. Doesn't have any actual affiliation with them originally, and Wizards of the Coast still have all the trademarks and IP rights that they did before. So if you are one of these groups that is using the TSR logo in your fan club or something like that, and you do receive a threat from TSR Lanasa, again, we're not lawyers, but it looks like they don't even own any of that anyway, so they don't really have a right to tell you what to do with it or what not to do with it. If Wizards of the Coast say it, on the other hand, you might want to listen to them. Side note, I want to know what the Independence Day barbecue at the Gygax house is like at this point. Ooh, because that's today, or for my perspective, it's that's today. So, fun times. <sighs> I guess we just roll a d20 and see which family members aren't invited. <sighs> Awkward. Now that we're caught up with the latest D&D news, let's take a short rest and hear some Wisdom of the Masters for some advice on an OP mitigation. I am more than the exalted ruler of this land and the master of all I survey. You think you're the only hero in the world? You become part of a bigger universe. Okay, so I've called everyone together to discuss protocol. Stop worrying, I donate all of your gold to charity. I don't think a gold fund me titled Ryu Needs a Dragon counts as a charity. Mm, you may think that, but I have a totally legitimate parchment from the local king that says it does. Uh, n- no, not what we're talking about. I just, um, I don't know, I just have this nagging sense that if we get a dangerously powerful artifact in here, that we're going to need to have a plan for how to deal with it. I am on board with this. Oh, wait, wait a second. Now I'm confused. Uh, what kind of dangerous artifacts are we talking about? Okay, so most veteran DMs have dealt with this scenario before. Somehow, someway, the players have acquired an item or ability that has turned the power curve into a vertical wall. Whether they defeated an enemy well before they should and have took their stuff, or you approved a piece of homebrew without reading the fine print, the practical result is they're now walking up to groups of enemies going, this is my boomstick, and it's not even worth rolling initiative anymore. Or you're sending hordes after hordes after hordes of minions to attack them, and they're just standing there with their hand out saying, no. Either way, most of the encounters are over much sooner than intended, and take up far fewer resources of the characters than you had planned on. So what to do. The biggest thing to remember is, much like when you're having trouble steering your car, when you find yourself bleeding a lot, or when someone mentions a campaign setting with spaceships and crystal spheres, try not to panic. Obviously, you're not going to sit at the gaming table and start screaming and running around frantically. I mean, if you really want to, we'd recommend at the very least put yourself on mute or step out of the room. But you want to avoid knee-jerk reactions that will frustrate yourself, the players, or both. The first thing to do is determine how exactly the balance of power is being messed up and whether it should be happening. Review the rules for the item or ability yourself and determine if it's being used correctly. There are numerous examples of people misinterpreting or misreading the rules for even low-powered spells and abilities, sometimes something that's done even as a larger community. It's also possible a similar misunderstanding is going on and causing the imbalance in power. If so, that's an easy fix. Just clarify the rules for everyone and move on. But let's say you look over the rules and determine that, yes, the players actually have acquired an Infinity Stone and are using it just as intended. From here, you have a couple of options. 
The easiest option is the mea culpa. Explain to the players that the item or ability they're using is way more powerful than you'd accounted for, and it's seriously skewing the way encounters are supposed to go. And then you offer some alternatives. We want to stress here that the best approach is offering alternatives, not declaring what's going to happen. Most players don't like being railroaded through a story by their DM, and they'll like it even less if you just jump in and do something by fiat that contradicts whatever they've accomplished by playing through the game. Giving them options should make the whole process smoother. So onto the actual alternatives. We're going to call the offending thing an item going forward, but this could also apply to an ability or honestly even a class. The most common options are removing the item, depowering it, or running with it, and we will tackle them in that order. If all of the players agree with you that the item is ruining the balance and they don't want to continue with it in play, then everyone can just agree that it's suddenly disintegrated, a literal god showed up and said, uh, thank you, I've been wondering what's happened to my toothbrush, and then they made off with it. Or it turned out to be a sentient thing and wandered off on its own. See Gollum and the One Ring. The details of the story are yours to make up. And it would obviously be different if it were a class or ability, as well as whether there are hooks that might see it return later in the campaign. Either way, the practical result is the offending thing is no longer in the game. The next option is depowering the item. This is harder to do and requires that the DM and possibly the player be comfortable with tweaking game mechanics and rules. If you're the type of person that homebrews things for your own games, this might be the way to go. The details here will, again, vary widely, but the point is to examine the rules of the item or ability and then adjust them so it's no longer as powerful. For example, if an item is doing 5d10 damage on a hit, maybe take 3d10 of that damage and have it only apply on a critical hit. Or if an ability the character's using is basically at will, change it so it's only usable once until after a shorter long rest. As mentioned, the actual solution will be heavily dependent on what's causing the problem, and will probably require some tweaking over time, particularly if you're dealing with something like a custom class where new and possibly unbalancing abilities will be appearing every few levels. A similar but slightly different approach is to make the item cursed. With cursing, it retains all of its power, but there's a trade-off the character or characters using it will have to endure. It may be slightly easier to find some workable rules for something like this. There are a number of cursed magic items and just plain curses for non-item situations that you can pull out of a variety of source books. Unfortunately, you're still essentially playing with custom rules, even if you aren't making them up out of nothing, so some trial and error may still be needed. If the effects are very powerful, you can't just pull a similarly powered curse out for them because it will probably destroy the character in question rather than just make things punishing or difficult. Trust me, I know all about finding a balance with cursed items. Now the two alternatives we just mentioned involve engaging with the players and confronting the issue head on, trying to find some sort of compromise. But if your players seem really committed to using whatever it is that is causing all of your headaches, or if you're trying to maintain your infallible DM mythos and don't want to admit you handed your three-year-olds a black credit card, you've got to run with it. If you go that route, you have to accept that your original campaign idea probably has to be heavily reworked, if not scrapped completely. Most campaigns are designed to take the progression of player power into account, and when that is disturbed, the pacing and the tone of the campaign changes drastically. Take Waterdeep Dragon Heist. Slight spoiler here, but let's assume the characters are dealing with the Castellanta family. If they have the ability to blow up the mansion before anyone in Waterdeep can do anything, the last part of the campaign is going to look very different from how the book intended. 
And if Asarak is the only thing in the Tomb of Annihilation that's going to be anything more than a speed bump for them, then they're going to be making it through that dungeon a lot faster. Probably the easiest thing to do if the characters decide to keep the item or ability of extreme power is to make that the focus of the campaign. As we've already indicated, it's likely the original focus of the campaign is going to be within their reach a lot sooner than originally planned. So while they're wrapping that up and enjoying steamrolling the enemies and obstacles in their way there, you can begin to shift the focus of the rest of the campaign onto the source of their power. Remember how we mentioned an Infinity Stone and the One Ring earlier? If you recall the movies or original source material for those items, they did exactly the same thing most of the time. Whatever the heroes were originally doing got a lot easier once the powerful artifact came into play. Then after they finished their original quest, suddenly everyone started asking questions about the artifact and started hunting it down. Captain America went from dealing with souped up Nazis to a Chitauri invasion. Bilbo helped some dwarves get rid of a dragon, and then his nephew has to deal with Nazgul and Sauron. The point is, the ultra-powerful whatever it is will attract attention, and the people interested in it are likely to be powerful enough to partially challenge or at least mitigate whatever the ultra-powerful thing is. Returning to the Waterdeep example, if the characters suddenly start nuking buildings, they're going to immediately attract the attention of the Magisters, if not the Black Staff directly. Having the premier magic user in Waterdeep and their minions after the party is very different from dealing with some thugs in the alleys. This is where examining the rules of the powerful item or ability can come in handy again. Almost everything in D&D is going to have a weakness of some sort, or leave a vulnerability. If they're getting more AC, they may be vulnerable to attacks requiring saving throws, or vice versa. If they have a powerful melee weapon, it does nothing if they're being bombarded at range. If for some reason the result is they're universally capable, start going after the rest of the party, or separate the massively powerful character somehow. This is a very common storytelling device, particularly in superhero movies. Thor and the Scarlet Witch, arguably some of the strongest superheroes in the MCU at the time, were kept out of the massive Infinity War battle until the very end. Captain Marvel didn't show up in Endgame until near the end either. Gandalf wasn't at Rohan until they needed to wrap up the battle, and whenever Daenerys had issues with combat in Game of Thrones, it was because the dragons were either sidelined or too young to fight yet. One important thing to remember in that scenario, however, is make sure you aren't wholesale preventing the powerful ability or character from doing anything. As we already mentioned, totally removing the character's abilities or item is usually not appreciated. Sectioning them off with an enemy or situation that challenges them specifically allows them to still use their power or powers without messing up the encounter for the rest of the party. If that's too hard to finagle, then another option is to follow the pattern of the wild magic sorcerer. Lock the ability or item down and have the power spikes be random or limited somehow beyond what they would normally be. This is similar to the curse solution, but it should be a little easier to manage because you aren't changing the rules, just limiting how often they apply. So you can give it charges like a wand, or you can make certain aspects only trigger when they roll a crit, or some other random number for an attack. Then loosen the restrictions as the character levels up to the point where the item isn't universally unbalancing. In either case, they still have access to the power in general, just not whenever they like. Gaining more control of it can also be a focus or a running theme as the campaign goes forward. One other cautionary note. While the power or item becomes the focus of the campaign in this scenario, you'll want to watch to make sure people aren't resenting that, particularly if it's focusing on one character. The character's importance to events shouldn't overshadow everyone else's story. 
Frodo had the ring, but we still followed Gandalf's evolution to a white wizard, Aragorn's whole king thing, and the Legolas Gimli bromance. While big scary people may be after whoever has the fantasy nuclear football, other characters should be just as involved. Maybe someone knows a person that might know more about the artifact, or has connections with a group that can help them hide from the attention. As we mentioned previously, implementing this solution by far involves the most work for you as the DM. If that sort of thing sounds interesting and exciting for you, then have at it. Otherwise, you may want to explore one of the other options around limiting or removing the item altogether. Finally, just a brief note on preventative measures. Unfortunately, with magic items no longer being explicitly leveled, and with bounded accuracy making levels of monsters and abilities less of a factor, it's harder to tell when an item or a class feature is going to be disruptive unless you have a lot of experience with either 5th edition rules or game design in general. Some basic recommendations are that you should avoid handing out legendary magic items or anything that provides static bonuses to attacks, AC, or saving throws more than plus one until characters are closing in on level 10. Also be wary of things that grant unrestricted advantage on any combat-related activities. As far as classes and abilities go, compare any homebrews with existing official classes. So far in 5th edition, Wizards of the Coast has done a reasonable job making classes balanced within themselves, so look at what the class is capable of doing at various milestones versus others. If at level 4, they have more health than a barbarian, can outcast the wizard, or outdamage the rogue without needing sneak attack, you'll probably want to pump the brakes on putting it in the game. But if something does sneak its way in, hopefully the rest of the advice we mentioned will help you deal with it. So, wait, wait, wait. You said you had a lot of experience with cursed items? Um, obviously. But Ostron's the one that fiddles with all the magic items in the workshop all the time. When do you deal with cursed items? Well, Lennon, I'm so glad you asked. While you ponder that question, I'm going to need you to stand in the corner and be very still. Ha! <laughs> I'm a warlock now. I can make wisdom saves. Oh, but apparently not against you. Meanwhile, Mr. Dialysis. Yeah, yeah, I think there's some unintended side effects creeping in. At least he isn't dreaming about the Tarrasque. I assume reused memory is still fine? So not only is your handiwork falling apart, now you're accusing me of negligence? Do you enjoy having chats with Modrons that often? Why would I be talking to the Modron? I just assumed your soul went to Mechanus every time I killed you. As Modius knows, none of the other gods would want to deal with you. Yeah, well, you still need me to fix Lendon's memory, so let me just look around in his brain for a bit, and you can take Ryu over to the scrying pool. In that case, I expect you'll be done by the time I walk across the room. What news from the north? Riders of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Last time we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, what's your opinion on the so-called holy trinity in parties? Is it necessary in some cases, or can it be totally tossed out on a whim? And have you ever played with a single class party? What class was everyone playing? How did that work? TR Knight wrote in on Discord to say the trinity was never really necessary, even in earlier editions of D&D or AD&D. But it did help adventuring parties be more effective. If you are messing with one of the roles, then the players change their tactics appropriately, which could mean taking longer to succeed at tasks, or the DM can provide alternatives by way of magic items or NPCs. 
As for single-class parties, I have run several for my players. I've run an all-rogue, an all-bard, and an all-wizard party. Each brought unique challenges and storytelling opportunities. As a DM, I enjoyed them as they created a thematic focus to the campaign and provided me with a unique direction to go with each campaign. Chivalry Bean on Discord says, My first 5e game was an all-bards game. It worked very well. I played a glam rock dwarf with a magic keytar because I googled dwarf bard and saw art of that very thing, and that settled it. I mean, how could I not at that point? And the Sabi on Discord says, I didn't mention it in the Disney Whispers section, but I was thinking about it some more afterwards. The Holy Trinity, I believe, actually comes from the MMORPG genre, although it has bled over into other games. And in the MMORPG space, the Trinity makes sense due to the way cooldown skills and other game mechanics work. As a main tank in World of Warcraft, the Trinity makes a ton of sense when there's a threat meter and you can force enemies to attack you with taunts and other underlying systems. But in D&D, enemies are often smarter than a threat meter, especially if you have a crafty TM that uses tactics. And that's also true for the party members. With good tactics, you don't always need someone at the front soaking up the damage and someone in the back always healing them to full. Video games, at least right now, can't account for the unique ideas and actions that come out in tabletop sessions. And Rat Queen wrote in on Discord to say, My old D&D group got together for a reunion one-shot. We surprised the DM by playing a party of all orc bards. Not optimized for battle per se, but the look on the DM's face while we introduced our characters was worth my character, a half-orc band manager, dying halfway through and finishing the game running an NPC. Kath Memvar on Discord says, I think the Holy Trinity is popular because it synergizes so well and is well-rounded, capable of taking on nearly any threat. While you can do parties without tanks or parties without healers, especially in 5th edition where a good chunk of classes and subclasses are healers, you'll have to change your tactics up. All fighters will play differently than all druids or all wizards. Additionally, it can lead to fun role-playing situations, like all rogues and bards being part of a thieves or assassins guild, or a group of fighters slash barbarians being an elite shock troop force. Regarding the single class party, I was in an all-bard adventure one time, with each player being one of the different subclasses. It was chock full of shenanigans, some of which Ryu mentioned last week. The best part was when the orcs she mentioned had laid siege to a town on a river. We were hired to find a way to disperse the horde, and as part of that task, we came upon an incredibly rich merchant with a very, very shiny ship, who happened to come down the river at the wrong time. We, through additional shenanigans, were able to convince the orcs that the shiny ship was what they wanted instead, and sent it off to sea with the orcs following, bellowing about the shiny ship being theirs. And Casa Mimic Enthusiast on Discord says, As far as I know, the trope of the holy trinity of classes stems from old sci-fi. For example, Spock was a fighter, Bones was a healer, and Kirk was the bard. That being said, there is always room to add more. In my games, I much prefer it if we don't have the same classes each time, as it will be more interesting to see how the party gets out of scrapes without simply punching or magicking their way out. I would love to see a non-magical party in a magic-rich environment. Make it so that the glass cannons are very, um, glassy, and let them figure it out. I also love to see players utilize spells in fun ways, so perhaps an all-wizard party could be amazing. And Mikey wrote in on Discord to say, In episode 171, at 45 minutes 11 seconds through to 45 minutes 21 seconds, MMO raid leaders around the world cry out in terror as Ostron confirms that overwhelming DPS is a legitimate strategy. <laughs> well, yes, you have you have ruined that for guild raid leaders. Um, how do you feel? I about the same. Yeah, that's fair. 
I'm glad uh, I didn't have to follow on from Rat Queen's feedback because as you read that out, I was genuinely laughing towards the end of it and had to put myself on mute. Um, yeah, an, an all an all party of orc bards. Um, definitely not optimized for battle, but definitely optimized for shenanigans. I feel. Um, did I, I need Arguably to Arguably not optimized for barding either well yeah being orcs um i i want to know though did the did the band have a name because they should and if if they if they did i want to know what it is so make sure you write in and let everybody know lennon i need your opinion on something could Uh you comment on carcer's analysis of the star trek away party (laughs) because i have questions okay so spock being a fighter You've got the Vulcan nerve pinch. That's fine. Bones, a healer. Fine. Kirk as the bard? I can see that. You can. Someone with a ridiculously high horny stat? <laughs> okay. I, I would think of Spark as more of a paladin, if anything. But Yeah, I'd, I'd go definitely more that, that route. But, okay. We, we can, I mean, we Kirk, can go with that. Kirk and Scanlan basically have the same energy. Hmm. So what are your guys' thoughts on the Holy Trinity? Uh, because Gath points out that it's popular because it synergizes really well, and the Sabi says that maybe it's a bleed-over from MMOs. I actually agree with both of those statements. That it synergizes really well, having been a bleed-over from MMOs. Yeah. Perfect. In MMOs, there is actually very little that non-healer classes can do to heal, so... If you have a heal at all, it's usually going to be a personal heal, and it's not going to be necessarily a great one. Mm-hmm. But in D&D, and especially in 5th edition, like we said, a lot of the classes and subclasses are getting their own heals, and it's a lot easier to go without a dedicated healer, because almost every class has some way to either heal themselves all the way back up fairly easily, or offer some kind of support to the other party members. Mm -hmm. I disagree with the Sabi only in that I think the trope definitely does come from video games, but I think it existed before MMOs. Like, if you go back to earlier electronic RPGs on consoles or computers, the idea of tanky characters that took damage, healers that restored health, and basically glass cannons that could output a whole bunch of damage was Mm -hmm. definitely there. White mage, black mage, and fighter. Yeah, particularly Mm -hmm. in games that used party systems, like the early Final Fantasy games, for example. You say that, though, but the early Final Fantasy games were actually based on D&D. So... Yeah. It does appear, though, that uh, all bard parties are pretty popular, and I don't know how I feel about that. Well, that's because as the KDM keeps complaining about the bard can basically do anything it wants to after you let it gain enough levels. Yeah. I do think an all-wizard party will be cool, though, so I'm glad at least TR Knight has experienced it. Mm-hmm. Though, actually, knowing the players that I know that play wizards often... Uh, uh, yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. So many fireballs. My main concern with an all-wizard party would be that combat would take four hours as everyone paged through their spell book to figure out what to use in what out in what order. No, they wouldn't, because it would all be fireball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's how you get the magic the gathering players in. <laughs>
And that brings us to this week's community questions. So are you familiar with Thay and their infamous red wizards? Have you encountered them in 5th edition, or do you have nostalgic experience from earlier editions? And do you have an experience with an overpowered item or ability showing up in-game? What was it? And how did the rest of the campaign or game play out because of it? Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 172nd entry into our chronicle. We'll be back with our 173rd entry on July 14th. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. And make sure that you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else that good podcasts can be found, or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways that you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favourite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash Dice Envy, and be sure to enter the code Heroes Rise at checkout to save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month and give you raw recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally you might get dragged into a recording or two for some dissonant whispers. Lucky you! To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with your friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow, and that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all of your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our head scribe, Gath Memvar, our social media mage, Ray Ray, our web wizard, Mark, our dungeon master and Adventures League correspondent, Indigo Spectre, our master of the marketplace, Blood Lake, and our audio alchemists, Mikey, Brenwin, and Tomasthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Chidoric, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brewhammer, The Sobby, Rat Queen, and Amber Squirrel Craning. Vince Fepp, for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show, be sure to check him out at vincefep.bandcamp.com. And Lo of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at Lowe's underscore Lair and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. Sorry, I'm laughing because the way Ostron said that was like he was slowly running out of batteries towards the end of the line. <clears throat> I've been slowly running out of batteries all day. Oh, I know the feeling. Hold on, I clicked away. All right. We'll click back. I'm working on it. All right, I'm t- all right. This adventure is interesting, okay? <laughs> How dare you be interested in the news? What are you doing? <laughs> TSRK was then bought out by a young upstart named Wizards of the Coast, who published the card game without gathering magic. It wasn't long before... No, no, no. no. About. About. About without. Okay.
They were very much with the gadget I, gathering I, of magic. I was I was confused about what I just read. Okay. <laughs> so were we, because that wasn't what was written. <laughs> <laughs> this new TSR, which we will call TSR Lanasa, then hired Guy Gag then hired Gary then hired Guy <sighs> It's two names, you can't mush them into one like that. Uh, yeah, but you have, have you seen how it goes it. back to back to back and I've got to sit here yeah, anyway. Yep. Okay, so I've can't, I've uh, So you've messed up on the first line. I have. I have. It's okay, I'll probably mess up the next one because it's mine. <laughs> I mean if you mess up the first one and it's not yours, that's also that that'll count too. I'm just saying. Somehow, someway, the players have acquired an item or ability to 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 And they'll like it even less if you just pump in and Pump in? No. I mean, and they probably will. Mm, yeah. <laughs> if the characters suddenly start nuking buildings, they're going to immediately attract the tension. The the attention? Not the tension. The attention. Jeez. I mean, they the magisters will be tense. <sighs> it's true. If that sort of thing sounds interesting and exciting, if that sort of thing sounds interesting and... and <laughs> you can do it. You know, it helps if you unmute. I don't know if yeah. you guys are familiar with this. Ugh. I am. It had happened to me last week. <laughs> it even. did. It happened to me last week as well. I should have learned. Anyway. Bless you. <laughs> That'll probably end up in the bloopers. And Facebook at facebook.com slash Can you read it? But above- it's got an underscore in there. Oh. And Lowe of Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on... Tw- <sighs> now you got me in my own head. Oh, why did you change your Twitter handle? <laughs> you can find him on Twitter at... Un- no, it doesn't start with an underscore. You can find him on Twitter. Use the search. <laughs> type his name in. You'll find him. Jeez. I see what you did there, Lennon. <laughs>